You're busy and you want the best for your kids. We're here to help. This is Hope and Will, a parenting podcast from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Your child is looking at you with big eyes, expecting you to answer some of life's toughest and most complex questions. In these moments, it's normal to want to protect your kids from things that are scary or confusing, and you may be tempted to downplay it or avoid the conversation altogether. The reality is, they will likely hear about it one way or another, so it's important that they're able to talk about it openly with you. You don't have to have all the answers, but starting a conversation is the first step. And it's one big, intimidating step. Today, I'm welcoming Jody Baumstein back to the show. Jody is a licensed mental health therapist from the Children's Strong for Life team. Jody's a respected resource on the topic of helping parents navigate challenging conversations with their kids. Jody, welcome back. It's so good to have you here. We've actually talked about doing this episode for quite some time, but it always is laced with this twinge of hopefully we don't need an episode like this. But the reality is we're here. Scary things happen, whether it's in our hometowns or around the world. And parents often feel pressured to respond or address this with their kids because they're seeing it out there and they want to get clarity on how to have those conversations. So what's your sort of first piece of advice when it comes to how to address tragedy with children? I think the first piece is acknowledging that we're humans too. We can't be robots and just jump into these conversations. We need a minute. And I think that people need to hear that. You have permission to take a beat. When we are faced with this heaviness, we're dysregulated ourselves. We're not even thinking clearly. So to think about sitting down with kids and trying to make meaning and process it with them, it's not really a fair expectation for us. So I think just giving people permission to really take a pause, notice what you are feeling, recognize that is totally valid and okay, and then as much as possible trying to regulate yourself. We're never going to be fully calm because these things are scary, period. Mm -hmm. But we do want to strike a sweet spot. It's okay and even really beneficial for kids to see adults having emotions because then they know it's okay for them too. However, we don't want to be so dysregulated that they now feel they need to care for us because that then creates more anxiety for them. And now they feel like they're in a caretaking position and they need to comfort us. It's like when you're on an airplane, if you see the stewardess's calm, Mm -hmm. then you're not freaking out. It's the same in parenting I think about. And I love that you say, wait until you are at least somewhat Mm -hmm. calm because it's impossible in some of these tragedies. But what about some of the questions that we don't really have the answers to? As parents, we don't have the answer to how someone could be capable of a horrific act or things like that. I think with that, there is this acceptance that we will not have an answer to every question that they ask. And I know that feels uncomfortable, but I actually think once we accept that, it's a little bit freeing to know I won't have all the answers and it's actually okay. They don't need us to have these magic words that don't exist, by the way. They don't need a perfect response. What they need is help and support navigating through it. But it doesn't require us to come up with 
all of these perfect answers to really complicated questions. And so I think there's also an element of taking the pressure off of ourselves by acknowledging before we even go into the conversation, there's no way I will have an answer for everything. And also giving mm. yourself an out on the front end that there might be certain things that catch me off guard. It's okay to also let your child know that's really complicated. I need to think about that one for a minute. Or you know what? Mm. Let's talk about that or let's look it up together. But always giving yourself grace to not be perfect because nobody can be. It is impossible to be perfect. What about some ways to start the conversation? Sometimes that can be the hardest place. Right. So now you feel somewhat ready as you can be, but you're worried you're going to say the wrong thing. So what I think is a really great entryway into the conversation is asking what they know. Because we have no idea what's on their mind, what might be top of mind for us. It might not even be on their radar. And so asking what they know is going to be a really great way to start the conversation because then you are getting a bit of a pulse check on what information they have, what's on their mind, what concerns they have. So you're asking that question and then you're really sitting back and listening to what are they saying? What are they not saying, but they're maybe showing you with their nonverbals? Are they fidgety? Are they tearful? Are they having trouble making eye contact? This really mm. sets you up for the rest of the conversation because you're not dumping your own worries onto them. You're letting them tell you and then they get to guide it from there. I struggle with this of when's the right age to start having those conversations. Mm. I, my kids don't watch the news, but I don't know what they're hearing in mm. school. And when do you know is the right time to begin that first conversation of, hey, have you heard of something really bad that happened? What's that right mm -hmm. age? It won't surprise you to know. I'm not going to give an exact age because it depends on the mm -hmm. child's development and what they're capable of handling. But what we can say is that if they don't know and aren't going to be exposed in some way, there's really no reason to bring it up and add fear. So a toddler, for instance, if they're not going to be exposed to it, there's really no reason to bring this up with them. It's just going to cause anxiety and be unnecessary. But Lynn, you said something really important. Well, what are they hearing at school? So for kids who are older and not with you every second of the day, there is the possibility they're being exposed, whether it's kids talking about it on the bus or somebody mentioning it at school. And that's where we do want to make sure we are getting ahead of it and having a conversation because we don't want them to be left alone, putting the pieces together and trying to make sense of it. So the answer to the question really is, if there's any possibility they're exposed, we want to have conversation. But you might have two different age groups, like a teen and a younger child. What is your advice on how to communicate when that's the case in your household, when you can't have a big conversation that you have with your teen, with your four-year-old. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is going to happen in a lot of households. So I'm glad that you asked. And I think we want to make sure that we are thinking about the youngest child and what's appropriate for them. Now, that means that not just our conversations need to be appropriate, but even what's on the screens in the home. So your older child might really want to be informed but we don't want that on the TV in the family room while younger kids are present. So it really means setting some hard limits on the fact that we can be informed, but we need to do this maybe after the youngest one has gone to sleep. Or maybe there is a screen that you and your teenager use 
during nap time or something else. But there really does need to be a clear limit because we know that even if we're not engaging the younger ones in conversation, they're absorbing everything. They're hearing us. They're watching things on screen. So really make sure that you are thinking about the youngest one, what's appropriate for them should be the general conversation. And then anything beyond that, letting your older kids and teens know you want them to be informed. You want to talk to them, but there's a time and a place. What about in a case, and this is more possible than ever before, that they're getting misinformation out there? How can you provide some of that clarity for them? Right. So I think we should assume that they will receive information that's not fully or even at all accurate at some point. And I think it's a really good practice to get ahead of something like this as they're starting to consume information and they're starting to see more things. Talking to them ahead of time about the fact that everything they read is not going to be a fact. Everything that they see isn't going to come from a credible source. But then there's also this piece which can be really important, which is to get on their level and join with them so that they don't feel like, here's the adult telling me what to do and making me feel like I don't know anything. So even acknowledging only if it feels genuine to you, this was something I had to learn over the years. There were times where I just believed something because I heard it. And then I realized a few weeks later that it was totally false. So I've had to learn this too. And here's how I've gone about kind of fact checking. And so walking them through that and really humanizing yourself for them to see that you haven't always had the answers either, but you can figure it out together. And when they're not sure, they can come to you and you can look into it with them so they don't feel like they're on their own with it. I don't have a team, but my friends that have them, they say it's impossible to get them to talk. (laughs) They won't open up. And actually, this is the case with my seven-year-old. I try and have a conversation to feel out if he's heard of something that's in the news. And I don't want, no, mom, and he like runs away. (laughs) What do you do when your kids don't seem like they want to talk? Well, a a couple things here. One, we are tempted to force it. We have to talk about this, but we also know that backfires. The only way we're really going to have a productive conversation with a child or anyone for that matter is if there is safety. And, And forcing someone to talk is really the opposite of that. So instead, we want to think about how do I create an environment and a safe space for them to want to talk to me? We can't force that. It means striking up a conversation and sitting back and giving them the choice to decide, do I want to engage or not? So our responsibility is to reach out and open a dialogue, but then they get the choice. Do I want to take the bait or not? Now, what we're not going to do is do it one time and that's the end of the story. We need to keep trying and do it in lots of different ways. For some kids who aren't used to talking very much about these kinds of things, it's going to feel really intimidating to sit down at the couch or the table and have this formal conversation. So a really great strategy is make it part of the routine, something that's familiar. Maybe it's on the drive home from school or during a game. Using play is a great strategy because it's the language that kids know. So weave it into something that you're doing that makes it really less threatening. And again, you're creating the space, but then you let them decide how much do they want to talk and how do they want to talk. I love that because that's so, that's a safe place. Playing is their 
safe place. It's their work. Somebody told me that and it resonated so much. Like you have your job, their job is to play. That's how they grow. Something that has been really difficult in parenting in this generation is that the things that are tragedies are so hard to get our own heads around as adults. Let's just be real, right? From school shootings to everything else in between. Is it okay to white lie and you don't have to really give them an idea of how bad it is out there? Mm. It's a really important question that a lot of people are struggling with. How do I help them through this? I don't even know how to get through it. And so it's a really human instinct to want to lie because we want to protect them. This is too scary. It's too big and confusing. I don't want them to feel this. I don't want them to experience it. But there is a sweet spot with everything. And what we want to be careful with is if we lie, there's a good chance they will figure it out. We don't give kids enough credit. They are paying attention. They're perceptive. And what we don't want to do is create uncertainty in their mind that they can trust us because we want them to come toward us when things are big and scary and not away from us. And if they think that we're not telling them the truth, they'll go elsewhere to get the information. And we know the danger in that is that there's a lot of misinformation out there, right? And then they're left trying to figure it out. How do I believe this? And who do I believe? And this is confusing. What do I do? Again, if we want them to come toward us, then we have to be real with them. We don't need to tell them more than they need to know, but we do need to be upfront. So if they're asking us a really direct question, lying is more times than not, it is going to backfire. So I do not recommend it. And as parents, I think we all want to tell them what they need to know and then provide the comfort Mm -hmm. for them. You're safe here. We're your safety What are some of the ways that we can provide that comfort for our children? One of the most important things is to validate their experience. This is a really critical step in any big conversation you're having with kids. First, we have to help them name it though. They need to know what it is that they're feeling. And I just want to acknowledge that we really struggle with this because we all have this fear that talking about things is going to make it worse. Oh, I don't want to talk about it. It's just going to make it worse. I don't want to bring it up with them. I might cause them anxiety. I understand that, but also it's just false. (laughs) The reality is when we name something, it actually makes it more manageable. So the first step in providing them comfort is to help them feel like they can handle this. And so helping them to name that emotion is going to be critical. And then you want to validate their experience. And here's the thing about validation. Validation does not mean you agree or that you have that exact feeling yourself. You're just letting them know, I see you, I understand, it makes sense to me. And this is really important because we can tolerate a lot of emotions as humans, adults and kids. What often causes so much of the pain is the shame and the judgment that we experience in response to the feeling. I shouldn't feel this way. What's wrong with me for feeling this way? Why can't I stop it? It's that causes so much of the pain. And so if we can help take that part away, it actually becomes a lot more manageable for them. And part of what gives you anxiety is that you can't control everything. And I'm sure for children, when they feel like things are out of control, there's anxiety there too. So what are some of the ways that we can help them with that feeling Mm -hmm. of 
not having control. First thing is we don't want to minimize that fear or that worry. Our instinct often is, how do I make them feel better? Tell them not to worry about it. It's going to be fine. I'm worried about that, not you. Those are really well-intended statements, but it doesn't actually address the issue. We need to teach them concrete skills because this is one thing that's going to happen in their life that feels really out of their control, but they're going to experience a million other things as they get older. So we want to use it as an opportunity to really build that muscle and build their resilience. So let me first acknowledge that when the brain is anxious, it's racing, thinking about all the future what-ifs and unknowns, worst-case scenarios. And so a really helpful strategy to work through that is called grounding. And this is not grounding in the form of discipline. This is all about regulation. And so having them plant their feet on the floor, take a deep breath, and then literally using their senses to bring them into the present moment. Because again, if the brain is racing into the future, worried about all the stuff they can't control, a great way to combat that is come back to the here and now. And so it's a really cool strategy because they can use it wherever they are, whenever they need to. Nobody even has to know they're doing it. Plant their feet on the floor and have them look around and notice what are a couple things I see? What can I hear? What can I smell and touch? When they're doing that, their brain is literally shifting their focus back to the present moment so they feel a little bit more grounded and in control. And then of course, outside of that, we want to give them opportunities to really think about what are the concrete things I do have control over? So what are the safety plans at school? Is there a family safety plan? Those tangible things can really help them to feel like there is something within their power. I feel like I just avoid it. We don't have the news on ever when the children are around. I try and avoid the conversation. I'll just be completely honest because maybe there are some other parents that do this as well. How bad is that? (laughs) On a scale of one to 10, how wrong is that? Yeah, so first of all, let me say to you, Lynn, it's not wrong. Like we gotta get rid of the judgment. We're doing the best we can and this is really hard. But I think being aware of that desire, which we all feel, to avoid. Now, what I wanna say about that is that with anxiety, it can be a really helpful tactic to use short-term distraction when we just need a minute, we need a break from something. I'm gonna distract myself by talking to a friend or playing a game. That's a really helpful strategy. The difference is with long-term avoidance, it actually fuels the anxiety and makes it bigger. Mm. So if we're avoiding something, the brain is perceiving it to be such a threat and the longer we avoid it, the bigger it gets. And then we start to think, I'm not capable of handling that. So what do we do with that instead? It's this gradual exposure to that thing we are scared of. So if it's having the conversation, we're not going to jump right in to the deep end with a huge conversation. We're going to build it in a small everyday moment. We can't expect ourselves or kids to have deep, heavy conversations if we're not talking about the day-to-day. And so that's a really gradual way to expose ourselves and them to conversation. And it can be just the dinner table. Some people make it a part of the routine so it becomes so familiar that kids don't even think twice. And it's a beautiful way to do it too. Some kids will even really look forward to this ritual of every day at dinner, we do rosebud thorn or we do high and low. And it becomes 
so familiar and routine that when the bigger conversations need to happen, you've already set the foundation for it. And you gave us such good advice on how to start the conversation, but this isn't just, we're going to have one talk and then never speak of it again. How do we continue the conversation with our kids when there are tough topics? Like we were just saying, it's really about embedding it into the family dynamic. We talk. Yeah. We talk in our family. That has to be so familiar that there's no question that when something comes up, we are capable of having these conversations. Now, when a lot of big things are happening in the news or in the world in general, do want to be mindful of our reaction and as much as we can keep our cool because if we have these really extreme reactions when kids come to us about something we've now shut the door now they don't feel safe to come they're like no way not doing that again gosh my parent got so worked up about that so trying to keep cool as much as we can and create space for them to guide the conversation Again, if we want them to be able to keep the conversation going, they need to see us as a safe space. So you might want to just make it a habit that instead of just asking something like, hey, how was your day? Which we've asked a million times and we don't really get much back. Asking them specific questions. What was the best part of your day? What was something funny that happened? Show interest in their life. Show interest in what they have to say so they want to come and talk to you. What about limits on how much media or news your kids should consume? Limits are really important. And not just for kids, but for us too. But especially when it comes to kids, what we want to remember is that until almost the age of 25, there is a part of their brain that isn't fully formed. And this part of the brain is really helpful when it comes to things like impulse control. So we can't just expect kids to set their own limits and figure it out on their own. They literally need us to help them. And when it comes to the news and media, there's a sweet spot with it all. We can be informed and not be consumed. And this is really critical. We want to start to teach kids by modeling it ourselves how to tune in to our own feelings and adjust as we need to. Many of us feel that we are just going through the motions and coasting through life at full speed and have no idea how we even feel. And so this really requires intentionality and thoughtfulness around slowing down and noticing. A lot of people, myself included, we sometimes have these alerts popping up with the news on our phones, on our iPads, whatever device it is. And these constant alerts are actually keeping a lot of people in this really heightened and revved up state. So although we think I need to stay informed, I have to be on top of it. For most of us, that's actually not really serving us at all. In fact, it's really counter (laughs) to what we really are needing. And so for some people, it means that maybe I look at the news in the morning or at lunch, maybe once in the evening. And then that's it. And I'm not going to get the constant notifications. You have to find what works for you. But the main thing here, as far as limits go, is for the entire household, if we can role model, at least shutting all screens down at least an hour before bed, because let's be honest, most of us are not sleeping well. We might be sleeping, but it might not be quality sleep. So making it a family habit that electronics, screens, everything is turned off at least a full 60 minutes 
before bed because not only is that stimulation keeping us up, but the blue light and also what we are consuming can be really dysregulating right before bed. I mean, it's a relationship and the key to a successful relationship is communication. And you have to, even in parenting, use that skill set of good communicating with your child to get anywhere. But I think when these tragedies strike, they can be so intense. Many times people need to seek out professional help. When do you know it's the right time to say, this is too overwhelming for me, I need help? I think when it comes to mental health, we're letting things go on for far too long. We do not hesitate for most of us to go see a doctor if there is a physical injury, illness, question even, we go. Most of us don't wait. We don't hesitate. But there's still a lot of stigma when it comes to mental health and a lot of confusion around what to do. And so the short answer to your question is do not wait. If you have gut instinct that something isn't right with your child, you're probably right. And the thing is, you are not expected to figure it out on your own. So you can go and get a consult with a licensed mental health professional and you're not signing up for anything. You could go once and decide, okay, maybe we don't need anything right now, but now I know where to go if we do. There's just this real need to stop being so reactive when it comes to mental health and really be proactive. Now, kids are not going to have the language most of the time to be able to tell us they're struggling. And I don't mean just little kids. And so we want to be really paying attention to their behavior. That's how they're going to communicate. So instead of reacting the way we do when we're tired and we're overworked and we're stressed, where we're responding with frustration, we want to think about responding with curiosity to figure out what are they trying to communicate to me? And big indicators here is that we all have ups and downs. Kids are going to have moments, but is it becoming excessive? Is it more days than not? Is it impacting their functioning in some way? So things like, like you said earlier, we have jobs. Their job is to be a kid, play, go to school. So if it's impacting their functioning, you might notice all of a sudden they're withdrawing from activities. They don't want to engage in those things they used to love to do. Or their anxiety is so intense they can't go to school. Or they're not engaging with their peers. These are really big indicators that something is going on. And again, you don't have to figure it out on your own. There are licensed mental health professionals who can help you tease it out, give you some concrete strategies. And if it has bubbled up to the point of crisis, can also intervene at that point. That's so important is those behaviors to look for. Are there any other behaviors? I think parents would really want to know this other than withdrawing from activities and maybe grades falling. What are some of the behaviors to really pay attention to and say, I need to have them seek professional help? So it, it's going to look different for every kid. Big changes in their mood. Or maybe your child is normally pretty upbeat and cheerful. Again, everybody has their ups and downs. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about now this is more days than not. It's excessive. They're tearful. Maybe they're not saying anything, but you just notice their eyes are super glossy. Maybe they're not making eye contact. They're super fidgety. You can just tell. Sometimes it comes out as edginess. So they're lashing out a lot at you, their younger sibling, withdrawing. So all of a sudden they're in their room a lot. They're not spending time with their friends. 
honestly, big changes in their eating or sleeping is often an indicator too. Maybe they're sleeping a ton or they're reporting that they can't sleep and they're up all night. Um, Same thing with eating, no appetite or they're eating excessively. These are really good indicators that something's going on. And of course, we have to note that any mention of suicide always has to be taken seriously. And I think we really have to, we have to say that because there's still a lot of myths surrounding suicide when it comes to kids in particular, that they're just looking for attention. They won't actually do it. And it's not true. Unfortunately, we see that with the data that it's not going in the right direction. So that means that we have to take it seriously every single time. No kid wants to say these things. So if they're saying that they want to die, wish they didn't wake up, or they're not saying those things, but they're engaging in really reckless behavior, not acting like someone who wants to live, take it seriously. Do not wait. That requires an immediate consultation and assessment. It is such an important message because right now we're seeing time and time again that you're exactly right. It cannot be ignored. Jody, thank you so much for joining us and such incredible information. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To learn more about the strategies and tips discussed today, visit choa.org slash podcasts, where we're going to link to a ton of great emotional wellness resources from Jody and her colleagues at Children's Strong for Life, as well as their Raising Resilience Initiative. And in case you haven't already listened, we're going to be sure to link the two other episodes Jody joined us with in season one. Those were focused on anxiety and the other on suicide and depression. They were deeply moving and helpful conversations we think every parent should hear. I'm Lynn Smith, and this has been Hope and Will, a parenting podcast from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only. It is not to be considered medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgments when making recommendations for their patients. Patients in need of medical or behavioral advice should consult their family health care provider.